believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent. And so, Ryan, I was for this episode, I was really trying to think of any way that we could to start a conversation about our topic today um, without referencing Indiana Jones right off the bat. Right, right. But can't be can't be done. Yeah. I don't think so. Like when you hear the Ark of the Covenant, can you disassociate that with the movie anymore? I mean, maybe if you're like three years old. Exactly. I was going to say ever since I was like eight years old, I mean, it was always Indiana Jones and we, we got to hold the bullwhip at, at the Ripley's warehouse. Remember? Yes, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, yeah, this it's when you hear the arc, it's Indiana Jones. So, all right. So as long as we're already there, let's just, um, let's pull up that scene uh, really quickly where uh, Indy's arch nemesis, Belloc, um, the weasel who's working with the Nazis, calls the Ark, quote, a transmitter, a radio speaking to God, to which Jones replies with his typical nonchalant pluck. Let's go see him together. I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> right. It sums up this episode pretty well, doesn't it? I mean, this is Indy. You know, does he really believe in the Ark or is it just a race where he's hoping to win some kind of prize at the finish line? And and it makes me wonder, I mean, how do we feel about it? Is the Ark a real artifact that can be recovered or is it nothing more than just a myth? Uh, well, at the end of the movie, Indy sees way more than enough to become a believer. And we'll hear from a few people on today's Notcast who feel the same way. And not only do they believe in the Ark, they think they know where it is. That's right. We'll talk to one of the world's most famous biblical archaeologists, a man named Dr. Randall Price, who says he's used research and common sense to figure out where the Ark might be. We'll also hear from a treasure hunter named Jim Barfield from Texas, who says he's used one of the Dead Sea Scrolls to deduce that the Ark is located in a different location. And then there's Carola Frenzen, a journalist based in Africa who says the art could be in a small chapel in Aksum, Ethiopia. How to get there? I don't know. We'll find out. But first, what in the heck is the Ark of the Covenant anyway? In my day job, I'm a journalist. I have been for more than 20 years now. And in this time, I have been mostly working as a foreign correspondent in different countries and continents. It's a job that enables me to combine my passions. So I feel very lucky. I have lived in Ethiopia for about five years, writing stories about all of East Africa from there. But yes, Ethiopia 
is the African country I have traveled most extensively and that I love most. So I ended up writing two books about my fascination with Africa and Ethiopia in particular, which is a very ancient and exciting and yes, always surprising place full of magical stories and a long history of kings and emperors that most people in the West know very little about. Um, for those who may not know, the Ark of the Covenant is a chest that was built to hold the stone tablets that are supposedly engraved with the Ten Commandments. The story of the construction of the Ark is told in the book of Exodus in the Bible. There it says that God ordered Moses to tell the Israelites to build an ark out of acacia wood and gold. And the instructions were very precise, including the exact measurements. And uh, for instance, to build poles on the side um, to carry the ark. It is said to be around 3,000 years old, incredibly powerful, and linked to several of the Old Testament's miracles. Many think the Ark is currently being guarded by a monk in a small chapel called Our Lady Mary of Zion in Axum, Ethiopia. In fact, once a year, a replica of the Ark is paraded through the town, where thousands come out to pay homage. But if the real Ark is being kept in the church, how did it get there? Why it is now supposedly in Ethiopia, in the small chapel of the church, Our Lady Mary Zion, uh, Our Lady Mary of Zion. Well, that's a long story that I will try to shorten. Um, the story is told in the Kebranigast, which is Ethiopia's national epic um, from the 14th century. Kebranigast means the glory of the kings. And the book um, traces the origin of the Solomonic dynasty of Ethiopia that all emperors of the country supposedly descended from. According, um, according to the story, um, um, the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Ethiopia by a man named Menelik, who, um, according to the legend, well, this was uh, the son of the Queen of Sheba and Israel's King Solomon. The legend states that the Queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia and uh, that she traveled to Jerusalem, where she had an affair with King Solomon, giving uh, birth to Menelik after her return to Ethiopia. When Menelik was about 20 years old, he traveled to Jerusalem and spent time with his father, who was very happy about this visit. Um, and uh, later, a man who was ordered to travel with Menelik during his return to Ethiopia is said to have stolen the Ark and carried it with him to Ethiopia. Menelik apparently um, only heard much later about the theft and then ordered um, to bring the Ark to Aksum. Um, this man later became Menelik I, the first emperor of Abyssinia, which is the old name of Ethiopia. The famous emperor Haile Selassie, who died in 1975, um, he was the 225th successor of Menelik and the last emperor of this powerful dynasty. So the Ethiopians discover that one of their own has stolen the Ark from King Solomon. But here's the thing. Legend has it that if you are unworthy of the Ark, it will strike you down, a la the last scene of Raiders. But because the hand of God did not strike down the Ethiopians, they felt that naturally they must be the true keepers of the Ark. And as the story goes, they keep it. So is it really there? Frenzen went to find out. Let me start by this. I have no idea what is located there. <laughs> no one is allowed in the holiest place of the chapel. 
apart from one priest who dedicates his whole life to this, guarding the Ark, or whatever is in there, day and night. Before he dies, another priest is chosen to continue with the task. It is actually pretty rare to see the priest, I have been told, but I was lucky to see him even several times during the days I was in Aksum, as he was wandering through the garden in front of the chapel. I can hardly believe that priest after priest are spending their lives to guard well, you know, nothing. So I do think that there must be something in there worth guarding, something very sacred to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. I took part in a procession with uh, thousands of believers one night as the tabat, a copy of the Ark, uh, was carried around town by priests. The people were all dressed in white, carrying candles and chanting prayers in geese, um, which is the ancient language of Ethiopia while the sun was slowly rising and this beautiful, crisp highland air was filled with something well, I can only describe as sacredness. It was a moment I will definitely never forget. It felt like a leap in time back 2,000 years. Or like something like time was suspended altogether. And truly in Aksum and around the chapel, there is an unusual kind of energy for those who are open to feel it. Maybe it is born out of the sheer power of collective belief. I don't know. But is the Ark really an axiom? Does it even exist? I truly think we do not need an answer to all of our questions. It's beautiful to have a bit of mystery and magic in our 21st century lives, isn't it? There are definitely those who do not believe the Ethiopian's tale. A Los Angeles Times story in 1992 profiled Edward Uhlendorf, who saw the supposed Ark during World War II and revealed that what is inside the church is merely a replica. Uhlendorf, who was a professor at the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies, noted that he never debated the Ethiopian's claim because he had to continue to work in the country and to disagree with them would have jeopardized his career. He passed away in 2011. According to the Hebrew Bible, when this holy chest was first built, it held tablets engraved with the Ten Commandments and was housed in Solomon's temple, also called the First Temple. However, the biblical story suggests that during the 6th century BC, an army led by Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> you got it. It was good. An army led by Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The whereabouts of the sacred chest has been a source of speculation ever since, but Dr. Price says that he thinks he knows what happened. Well, my name is Randall Price, and I'm Distinguished Research Professor in Biblical and Judaic Studies at Liberty University. And I'm also founder and president of World of the Bible Ministries in Texas. Uh, my uh, primary focus has been on biblical studies with an emphasis in archaeology uh, so that uh, people can understand that there are facts behind the faith. Uh, I've worked for 25 years in Israel as an archaeologist, uh, primarily at the site of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. I was 10 years the uh, director of excavations on the Qumran Plateau, and the last uh, three, almost four years now, I've been co-director of the Qumran Excavation uh, cave project. So we have been trying to find new Dead Sea Scrolls that might be hidden in, uh, in caves that 
heretofore have not been found. Well, uh, my, my job is to basically weigh what we know from history, take the different accounts that have been come down to us, the different theories, uh, kind of evaluate them to which one has the most credibility, and then try to say, on that basis, this is the most likely spot. And, and for me, the Jewish tradition, which is uh, recorded in a number of places, uh, which makes the most sense because uh, the priests were to guard the temple day and night. It's almost impossible to get uh, for anybody to get past them. That was just their job. Um, you had a balustrade surrounding uh, the temple area that separated the Gentile area from the Jewish area. Upon pain of death, you couldn't enter that area. Paul was accused of trying to bring a Gentile there. Didn't do that, but he was accused of that, and, and uh, that led ultimately to his Roman trial. Uh, we know that the priest, uh, and, and we're talking about thousands of priests, not just few people. This area was heavily guarded, heavily watched. And then to think that you could get actually into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and take that ark out uh, was just it's not possible for that to, to have taken place. So, um, so, so what are we talking? We're talking about a place that uh, you know the ark had to remain until the priest who took care of it would put it somewhere else. Uh, since there's no evidence that it was lost or stolen or destroyed, then the assumption is that this was so important to Israel and to its history uh, that they would have they would have secreted it away in some place. And under the Temple Mount, there are vaulted areas. Uh, though some have been discovered, some cannot be discovered because you can't do archaeological work there. Uh, some were found in the 19th century. Uh, but we know the whole area is kind of honeycombed with these kind of vaulted areas. And the belief is, based on that tractate of the Mishnah I mentioned, because it tells us where the priests were working and where they saw the flooring. And it was a place called the Pit of Wood. And this was an area uh, near to the sanctuary area, probably somewhere kind of close on the the southeastern side. But nevertheless, uh, they believe is that under that was some kind of passage that led to a chamber. Others believe it's directly beneath wherever the foundation stone was in the Holy of Holies. That was within modern Dome of the Rock, um, which is the more likely spot or somewhere near there, then uh, the Ark would still be in a hiding place beneath the, in some kind of chamber beneath the destruction of two temples down. Uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem mm -hmm. uh, is a 35-acre platform. Well, today, it is mounted, um, what's, what's there uh, are Islamic buildings, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then the Dome of the Rock, which is a shrine. And that whole area, however, is, is uh, controlled by the Muslim authorities. Right. And that was the site of the former uh, temple. And so anything that was uh, hidden away would have been hidden away before the destruction, probably of the first temple. Because Josephus, a first century historian, tells us that in the second temple there was no ark. That uh, the barren stone where the ark had once sat is the place where the priests would pour out the blood on the Day of Atonement. But they didn't have the ark physically within the temple. Mm. Other sources tell us that um, it was hidden beneath and that the priests knew this. That's why they could continue to have 
the ceremony of the Day of Atonement to require the blood be poured on the mercy seat of the ark because he said it was beneath that area. But they couldn't bring it out because Israel uh, didn't have independence. They had they were under Roman rule. Uh, sure. There were a lot of Roman authorities continually tried to desecrate the temple, putting images of the emperor there, other things. So it was a conflicted time, and even some of the priests themselves. Uh, when we talk about Qumran, we believe one one theory is that this was a group of priests who once were connected with the Jerusalem Temple, but or may or were priests, but from the Zadokite line, not from the the line of the Hasmonean rulers who came in and made themselves priests, and so they separated themselves and were down at Qumran, and uh, for that reason, then. Uh, they regarded the priest who were in Jerusalem as really uh, illegitimate. And so for a number of reasons, the Ark had to stay hiding. And there may have been a group of priests who knew where its hiding place was, but they couldn't do anything about that. So Price says the Ark could be located in a secret chamber below the site of the first temple. So can we dig around and see if it's there? Probably not, as the site of the Temple Mount now includes a mosque, and the whole site is surrounded. Yeah, really not. I mean, I've had people uh, who have tried to use different types of remote sensing, have used something called a gold gun to to try to spot gold. But the whole place, I mean, the Dome of the Rock, is one, it's covered with nine microns of uh, gold. Uh, there's other gold tiling all inside. There's other things. Um, and it's really hard to say. I mean, you'd have to have access to a certain point to to keep from, you know, having other things that would uh, contaminate your search. And it's not possible to get there. Um, there are there are people connected with the temple movement in Jerusalem who believe they know where the ark is. Um, I used to need an interview. Some of these uh, back in the day, it was. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Getz and also Rabbi Shlomo Gorn. Uh, he was the chief Ashkenazi rabbi, and Getz was appointed rabbi of all the holy places. And they felt they had identified where this was. And they had also tried to dig a tunnel to try to get to the ark at one point uh, back in the uh, back in around 1990s, somewhere in there when they were working on the Western Wall Tunnel. It's a it's a uh, area beneath the present uh, Temple Mount, uh, part of underground Jerusalem, and they found this gate to the temple, which they think is the closest one to the Holy of Holies, so they began a clandestine effort to dig beneath this and to get to the site, but they were found out by the media, and a riot happened, and the government stepped in, and they had to close the site up, so you can go to the place where they keep, they they broke through the wall, but it's sealed up today to look as though it were natural wall, but it's not. So only people who really know this inside story uh, kind of can identify the spot, but it's the entrance to what's called Warren's Gate uh, there beneath the, the present-day Temple Mount. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I talked and they said we need another year, year and a half to get to the site where we thought the Ark was. And, uh, they had a lot of mystical ideas about things, but... Uh, basically, no one has seen it. No one has found it. So is the Ark in another country or just below the site of the first temple? 
The answer is neither, according to Texan treasure hunter Jim Barfield, who says that the Ark is actually hidden in another location. Barfield says that he's decoded a copper scroll, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which reveals the sites of various hidden biblical artifacts, including the Ark. He theorizes that before the temple was attacked by the Babylonians, Solomon hid the Ark and other artifacts by sneaking them out of the temple through the underground tunnels, tunnels that led to the city of Qumran, where the scrolls were found in the 1940s. I, I'm, a, I'm a retired firefighter from Lawton, Oklahoma. I was uh, actually, my last few years at the fire department, I was in the, uh, <clears throat> the fire marshal's office, and I was an investigator. That most people call it arson investigator, but uh, arson investigators don't like to be called that. We're more of, uh, we're, we're investigators, period. <clears throat> Very enjoyable. But I got in, interested in this, uh, this copper scroll. Oh, gosh. It was, oh, 2006 is when I really got interested in it. I looked into it and I noticed the connection between the Dead Sea Scrolls and Lots and lots of biblical stuff. So I thought, you know what? It was a uh, winter. I, I didn't get out much. I just retired probably about eight months before. And I just thought, why not? I was an investigator. Let me give it a shot. I'll see if I can understand this copper scroll, which is literally a copper scroll. One scroll. It broke in two when they were trying to roll it up uh, 2000 some odd years ago. And it what this copper scroll does is it describes the location of 57 hordes of treasure from um, people will argue with me about this but i don't care it's the it was from the first temple time frame and it's got massive quantities it indicates massive quantities of gold silver vessels even biblical artifacts, like one of the one of the one that ones that named specifically, is the breastplate, or which they call it the ephod in Hebrew, is the breastplate that the high priest wore on the Day of Atonement. So the temple tunnels empty out where Barfield says the scrolls indicate the artifacts to be caves in the city of Qumran. After taking his ideas to some archaeologists and rabbis in Israel in 2009, he was able to start looking. Yes, if if Second Maccabees is true, and which I believe it is, and I've and if I actually have found the right location, it says that in the, in the document. And again, read Second Maccabees, second chapter. It tells you that Jeremiah took these items, put them inside a cave, and one of them he says was the the table of showbread, Ark of the Covenant. Uh, altar of incense and the and the entire tabernacle, which is a big tent that God took around or Moses took around with him in the wilderness. So all of these things, it, it's like an Indiana Jones thing, you know, where they leave all these neat clues and they bury all these very important biblical items and place them inside of a cave. That was huge and it's very significant especially for what's happening today. Metal detectors indicate that there is a potential cache of metal located in those caves, which further leads Barfield to think he's found a stash of extremely important biblical relics. Now he would like to further explore this area. Right now, there's two problems, though. One is a global pandemic and the other is political. 
Well, I, I'm just fascinated by this topic. Like I said, ever since I was a kid and probably because of the movie and other stuff. But uh, I, I did want to say that I did have a fun conversation with Dr. Price after the interview uh, where I was just asking him the differences between what we see in the Indiana Jones movie when it comes to the Ark and what the biblical description of the Ark reveals. And basically what he That's said- That's a question, by the way, before you give the answer to that. Sure. That yeah. is a question that that pisses off real archeologists every single time. Like you, you, you and I it. both worked in higher education and we you probably talked to some, some archeologists and professors. They hate that. <laughs> They hate that comparison. You're right. So You're much. exactly right. E- even though it's done, I mean, it's, I, I think it's, maybe it's a disservice, but it's done a service to archaeology at large. I, I was going to say, the, the one thing that they could say, though, is how many people got interested in archaeology because of that movie, right? Yeah. Uh, but he, basically his response to that question was that the Ark really doesn't have any power, you know, uh, and I think we alluded to this before. But it's not going to melt your face off. It's really so he so basically his question was, why were the Nazis really looking for this anyway? Because God wasn't going to be able to let the Nazis use his power to 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 utilize it for for bad. Right. So uh, he thought that was kind of an interesting uh, difference between the two. He explained that, you know, the power comes from God. It doesn't come from this. It's not a weapon as it were. Yeah. I, you know, like, like, uh, not to uh, offend any fundamentalists out there. Um, but I mean, so much of, uh, a lot of the stories in the Bible, a lot of religious people even think are, you know, they're, they're allegories, they're symbolic. Um, and the Ark, like, okay, going back to Raiders, um, the fear of the Nazis getting the Ark where they can just walk with it in the front of an army and just lay waste exactly. to whoever's like, that's a terrifying thought. Um, but much like a movie like Night of the Living Dead is kind of symbolic of a, of a virus or some kind of pandemic, like you could maybe make the same case for the art. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and you bring up a good point too, is it's another, something we should point out uh, that, you know, we did this interview with uh, all of these people really before uh, our, all of our worlds changed because of this pandemic. Uh, so the reason that there's only reference to it really here at the end is, is because of that. Uh uh, timing, you know, these interviews were done at least a month before we record. So, uh, we just kind of wanted to point that out for everybody as well. Yeah. Um, and we will try to not make every episode of Ripley's about the global pandemic because, um, fuck that. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, what do you think? Anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so, except the next two episodes might have references to the global pandemic. <laughs> uh, I guess you can't get around it. All right. Well, we'd like to thank Dr. J. Randall Price, Jim Barfield, and Carola Frenzen for sharing their stories with us today. So because we've been referencing the Bible, did you know, Ryan, in 1971, Edgar Mitchell successfully brought a microfilm of the King James Bible containing all 1,245 pages to the moon during Apollo 14 on our website? Ripley's.com. 
you can read about how this Bible is the first and only book to have been on the surface of the moon. Believe it or not. How did Ripley's obtain it? Find out at Ripley's.com. We've learned a lot in this episode about biblical archaeology, and we've learned a bit about the most famous archaeologist, the fictional Indiana Jones played by Harrison Ford. But did you know that Ford wasn't the first choice to play the swashbuckling professor? In fact, the first actor chosen to play Indy was none other than Tom Selleck, or television's Magnum P.I., Empire Online reports that Selleck, at the time the Marlboro Man on countless freeway billboards, was offered the Indiana Jones role, then in a kind of cruel twist that kills most careers, CBS TV picked up the option of the pilot that Selleck had just made, Magnum P.I. That meant no indie for Tom Selleck. Now, the irony of this was that the actor's strike at that time delayed the start of Magnum's filming, meaning that because Indiana Jones was shooting in Europe far away from union regulations, Selleck could have done the role after all. Showing that he has a sense of humor about it, Selleck appeared in an episode of Magnum that parodied Raiders with riffs on the hat, the whip, and various booby traps. So it doesn't matter to us whether your style is leather jackets, fedoras, and bullwhips, or Hawaiian shirts, sunglasses, and Ferraris, we're going to be telling your story. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. The Notcast is recorded at my house and Ryan's house, but also sometimes at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode, please go give us a review on Apple Podcasts. All you need to do is tap that fifth star and it would be super appreciated. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Next week on the Notcast, we imagine a world where we find ourselves without any modern conveniences, no electricity, no running water, no gourmet fast food. How would you survive? Could you survive? Come with us as we enter the world of doomsday preppers next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not Cat.
Believe it or not.